friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. In Exodus 19.5, says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey, notice that if. So Second Chronicles had it, if, right? If my people will humble themselves and play. We see, we, we, we see if again in God's statement. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples of the earth, uh, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's the same promise that he made to Abraham. And this covenant was going to be identified by two basic things. First, the Ten Commandments, right? And if you keep reading in Exodus, you see another 42 commandments. And you may remember that in the Ten Commandments, the first one is worship Yahweh alone. Second, don't make idols. Then he lists the rest. And in in this passage of Scripture, we also see that the tabernacle was a really big deal, and and God takes time to say, if we're going to have this covenant together, I need you to build me this tabernacle. And after hearing these two things, the Ten Commandments and how to do the tabernacle, uh, Exodus 19.8, we see it again in Exodus 24.3, the exact same thing. It says, the people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they accept the vows of the covenant. And this group of people agree to be one with God. A few verses later, in verse 18, it says, now Mount Sinai was, think about this. I mean, just picture this. You're at the base of a mountain with a million of your closest friends, setting setting up tents, and up on this mountain, this is what you see. It's wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. It goes on to say that God spoke to His people, and He did so in a thunderous voice. Okay? This isn't cartoon stuff. This this happened. I mean, can you imagine being one of those people? You see the fire, you see the smoke, you feel the shaking, and you hear the voice. And the voice summons Moses up yet again to the top of the mountain. And that's as fast as I can summarize 31 chapters. So that brings us to chapter 32. In chapter 32, starting with verse 1, it says, when the people saw that Moses was delayed, by the way, it was up there 40 days, when when they saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out, up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what what has become of him. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Yes, this thing that we just built, it wasn't here yesterday. Yeah, that's who brought us up out of Egypt. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. Probably couldn't get out of bed for much else, but they rose up early for the golden calf and burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Because we have some young people in the audience, I'll let you use your imagination on what to play means. But it was a party scene that was going on. Sin always progresses. Sin always begets more sin, right? Just starts with one thing and progresses, and, pre- and progresses until total debauchery. We see last week Jonathan gave us five R's. I'm going to give us four D's today. We're really getting into this preaching thing. So, we see, we see some things here. We see that first the people… The people are delayed, uh, or the people saw that Moses was delayed, and then says, make us these gods, hurry up, do this, because we don't know. Okay, so what do we, what do we learn from this? We, there, there are at least four Ds that can lead us into sin. First, this idea of democracy. I'm not cracking on our government. It's a great government, I, I, sometimes. And, and, but democracy, this herd mentality of just the people, right? That, that's what it means when, when Paul talks about, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. It's just this herd mentality will never cause you to move in a direction towards God. Like if you follow the people and you pick up your feet, it's not going to move you in a stream towards becoming more like God. Second thing that we see is there is a delay and there is impatience. Hurry up. We, we, we need to move on. If we're not going to do it, uh, if he's not going to do it for us, we'll do it our own way, right? And we, we do the same thing. Because why? We want to control our own destiny. We want to have control. Not just leave it up to some, somebody or something that we cannot see. And then finally, just this doubt. It says, well, they didn't know what happened to Moses. So in the midst of not knowing, they decide what they're going to do. And folks, that is sin. This is a group of people who are still at the bottom of the mountain. They can still see the smoke. They heard the audible words of God that actually said, don't make idols. He, he, he said, in case you don't get that, uh, don't make them out of gold. And to be even more specific, don't make any image in the form of an animal. This is just a blatant disregard to God's Word. And, and to think that they did it all right at the mountain that was shaking, right underneath God's nose. It's pretty b- brassy, isn't it? Yet you and I do the same thing, don't we? Sin, sometimes knowingly stepping into sin. Under what we know kind of in one part of our brain is the watchful eye of God, but do we really live that way? And how would we live differently if we actually believed that the loving Father sees everything? I don't know if it, for them and for us, for the Israelites and for us today, God's people. I don't know if it's spiritual ADD. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's control. 
But what we saw in the Israelites is they sure didn't know what to do with a smoke-billowing, fiery, thunderous, mysterious God. They didn't know what to do with Him. So they said, let's create one that's more manageable. Let's create God in our own image. And unfortunately, it's not just with our primitive forefathers, is it? We still tend to shape God in our image. The golden calf really just shows us how Israel and all of humanity will try to domesticate God and worship Him on our own terms. And we just need to call it what it is, and that is sin. It's just easy to say, I will follow you, Yahweh, but I'm going to have to do it on my own terms. I'm going to have to do it in a way that's best, that's easiest for me. Now, the triune God expects us to trust Him, to trust His ways, because His plan, it hasn't changed. Genesis goes back to Genesis chapter 12, right? His plan, or actually goes to Genesis 1 if you want to. From the very beginning of time, it was to work out His purposes for the world through a covenant people. But the problem is that covenant people, from the very beginning of time, has not wanted to be married to the real Him. The people whom God wanted to rule through is an unfaithful group of people. This is the Adam and Eve storyline all over again, isn't it? We see it in the Israelites time after time. We see it in the American church day after day. We see it in Skyland. We see it in our own lives. It's Jewish tradition actually describes the golden calf incident as the nation's Genesis 3 fall. And now, not only does God have to fix the world, He has to fix His people who are supposed to be assisting Him in fixing the world. See how sin always leads us into a defeated position? It sets us up against God. Jesus says that we're for Him or against Him. And if we were to keep reading parts of this passage, it gets pretty rough. God gets mad. Moses gets really mad at the people. And what kind of loving father wouldn't get mad with outright sin and disobedience? So Moses and God have a talk. I don't know if you ever got that talk from your father. It's time to have a talk, and he gets serious, and you see the, kind of that stern look. Well, that's what Moses got. And what Moses proves in this point in time is really cool because Moses proves that he could be the kind of man that God believed Moses could be when God called Moses to lead his people. See, God's, God's man had grown in grace. He used to have this fiery temper, right? Even murdered somebody. But now Moses, he's an intercessor. He's a mediator between God and God's people, pleading with God. And, and if you, you read this, and I encourage you to, to explore these passages in Exodus, from 24 to about 34, but you'll see how Moses goes up five times and, and intercedes. We don't have time to go through them all today, but one in particular in chapter 32, verse 32, Moses even says, God, you can take me if it means you'll spare the rest of the people. He was willing to lay down his life. And so what I think we see is we see three things that are pretty clear 
through the Israelites and their golden calf. First, we see how quickly we as human beings can turn away from God. We have this same idea, right? He rescues them. They grumble, he provides. They grumble, grumble, he provides. They just keep wanting more. And it's as if they're saying, what have you done for me lately, God? We have three enemies. You have to know this. They're fighting against you every hour of every day. You have your own flesh that causes you want to, to want to do stupid stuff like replacing God with something other than God. You have the flesh. You have the world trying to squeeze you into its mold. And if you pick up your feet and go with the flow, they will. And then you have the very real enemy, Satan, who has an army of people who would love nothing more than to screw up the life of a follower of God. Those three things are always at work. Second thing that we see is that we see that in Moses, there is this need for a certain type of person, a certain role, if you will, and we still need this today. You see, God, if God's going to be married to a covenant people, they're going to be unfaithful, right? And so we're going to need somebody else who will faithfully represent him when we blow it. So that we're going to need, we're going to need some kind of intermediary, some kind of priestly figure, a prophet, someone who will mediate this relationship and help us then extend the blessing to all nations. And Moses becomes that prototype for us. And we see clearly in Moses this foreshadowing of a figure, a messianic figure, who will willingly lay down his life to rescue all people from the sin of slavery, or the, the slavery of sin. Both. Second thing we see is not only is it a foreshadowing of the messianic figure, it's a foreshadowing again of his people who will follow and look like that messianic figure, okay? We are to imitate Christ. And when we imitate Christ, we become this kingdom of priests that it talked about in Exodus. That, that's what we get to do. That's our, that's our privilege. And if you read the story closely, you see that God only spared the nation. It appears, if you read it, you play kind of mental games in your mind, well, did he know that Moses was going to, it, he wanted to wipe the people out. He was frustrated. He was angry with him. And after Moses' intercession and his plea, he chose not to. You see, there's this pattern that we see consistently throughout Scripture where one faithful servant can usher in God's favor and mercy on the many. We see it in Moses. We see it all throughout the prophets. We, even see, we obviously see it in Jesus, and we see it with the four, para, the four guys who carry the paralytic to Jesus, right? They drop him down, and Jesus says because of their faith, his sins are forgiven. If that doesn't cause you to scratch your head, I don't know what will. But what it says to us, if one faithful person will intercede for another, God has proven that he'll show mercy. Humanity still needs mediators who will introduce humanity to the mediator. See, what, when Moses, it's cool when you read this, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he was glowing. He had this glow of God. He, he was imaging God, which goes back to the story plot, right? That God created us in His image. When humanity is fully connected, when it's fully charged with the presence of Holy Spirit, 
When we're operating in full covenant capacity as designed, we become the true image bearers of God. Do you get that? That, that? That's exciting. That's our responsibility. That's our gift. That's a complete contrast from building some fake image like a golden calf. We get to be, we get to be a kingdom of priests, intercessors, connecting lost people to a Father who loves them. We're called to be a holy nation too, right? We're called to be holy people, holy people. And we cannot be holy with undealt with, unconfessed sin. Holiness and sin don't go together. And repentance, repentance is not only a call to holiness, it is the path to holiness. And God's calling us, if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, it's a call, but it's also the way to become holy. Third thing that we learn from this story is we, we learn how God responds to wayward people. Exodus 34. This is beautiful. In fact, this is the most quoted description of God in the entire Bible. Often in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, we'll get there. And this is the Lord speaking. So, so Moses says to God, show me your glory. And so this is what happens. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, meaning generations, thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm not going to talk too much about the second part of that. But we do see these characteristics play out in this passage, right? He will deal justly with those who despise him or ignore his commands. He will deal justly, okay? And I believe that begins here. A lot of times we just think, oh, that's hell, and sometimes way, way later, and we don't, we don't apply it to our lives today. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's going to deal justly, quickly, because he has hopes for your life. He has people he wants to reach through you, so that becomes uh, something that he deals with right away. But we see his fundamental character is what? As, as love, or excuse me, as mercy as grace, as patience, steadfast love, loyal faithfulness. That's God. That's the God who, who we confess our sin to. See, I used to think that, that this idea of separating, you know, sin separating us from God. I just thought, you know, it's, how can we avoid that so we don't make our heavenly dad mad or disappointed? I think I missed the point. I think the point is, why would I be foolish? Why for one moment would I want there to be any room, an inch between me and a God like that who's loving, faithful, gracious, merciful? Why would I want there to be any separation from a God like that? And when I do experience that, I miss His nearness. I said that Exodus 34 was the most, uh, most quoted um, verse in the Bible 
as it relates to describing God. It's only quoted one time in the New Testament. This is a late ad, so uh, it's not on the slides. But it's John 1, verse 14. It'll be familiar to some of you. The Word became flesh and set up a tent among us. And we saw His glory, the glory as of the one and only Father. This setting up a tent, this seeing His glory. Yes, it's the same glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. That person, that glory has become human. And then John goes on, he says, of that one and only from the Father. He's full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the Torah was given through Moses, but grace and truth was given through Jesus. In the Greek, grace and truth, it's how it's tran it translates the Hebrew for what we see in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Mercy, gracious, loyal love. They take all those words and make it the Greek word grace. Meaning, and then the meaning for trustworthy and faithful, they take it and make it truth. So what we see is this God who's described in Exodus 34 has become a human. Jesus is the God of Exodus 34 incarnate. So like most of us, we want to say, Lord, will you show me your glory? It's like I already did. My glory is Jesus. God looks like Jesus. That has to be your primary descriptor when you think about what God looks like. God looks like Jesus. He's always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time where He hasn't looked like Jesus. We hadn't always known that, but, but now we do. Scripture's been revealed. And Jesus reveals once again what God looks like. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, loyal love, and He'll be faithful forever. And He will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin to anyone who will repent. Forgiveness precedes healing. Repentance precedes forgiveness. If you ever get hung up on this, what about the wrath of God? Start with Exodus 34. End with John chapter 1. And if you ever get this different picture of God, maybe we just lacking understanding, and repeat Exodus 34, John chapter 1. That doesn't mean that sin is not serious. Sin is serious. Sin's very serious. Sin's serious because we risk facing the loss of God's presence due to our sin. Brick by brick, sin by sin, unconfessed, unpaid attention to, we just layer the bricks until we've separated us from God. He hasn't gone anywhere. We also risk facing, we risk uh, facing the loss of God's goodness that He wants to pour out on us due to our sin. And finally, there's another risk, and that is we risk facing God's discipline due to our sin. You have a Father in heaven who loves you, and what loving Father would not discipline their child? Jonathan had us read a book as we prepared for this series, and uh, I just love this quote in the chapter that he had me read. It says, alas, due to the corrosive and corruptive power of sin, the believer with all his mighty potential, the salt and light for which this world hungers, 
is unable to function as intended. We just can't be us. We can't be who we were created to be if we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. We are a kingdom of priests. And to do our role effectively, we must be holy and set apart. And holiness, as we've already said, holiness and sin cannot coexist. So it's paramount for the follower of Jesus to confess and to repent in order to be the true image bearers of God. And when or if we will humble ourselves and pray, turn from our wicked ways, He'll hear from us. He'll heal, he will hear from heaven. And He'll heal our land, our hearts, our families, our church, our city and nation. And we believe it's His only plan to heal the world. No revival, no revival will ever be ushered in without the opening wide, the doors of revival. Matthew chapter 1. Angel goes to Mary and Joseph and says, you're to name this child Jesus. Do you remember why? They're to name the child Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. Because as go the people of God, so goes the rest of the world. As we, as his people, will repent and turn from sin, God has a highway to take his message to lost people. So why would any of us attempt to live with the guilt and despair of sin? Why would we risk so much for so little? Why would we as followers of Jesus live like spiritual paupers and act with such mediocre results? If you believe it, revival can come to any church, any life, any family, any city, any nation, where God's commands are obeyed, and sins are confessed. So what do you think about the golden calf story? Do you think like me it's incomprehensible to see the billowing smoke above and build a replication or a replacement for Yahweh? Do you think it's foolish? And I would just say why would we live one moment? If sin always leads us into a defeated position, why would we allow ourselves to be defeated? To hang our heads low and walk around like sin's just kicking our butt. Sin is no longer the master of the follower of Jesus. It is no longer your master. You've been set free. It's as miraculous as going through the Red Sea. And don't forget that. They forgot quick and started complaining and started doing all kinds of other stuff. We do the same thing. We're human, but that's why we have to build a rhythm of repentance into our lives. And so that's what we do at the end of nearly every service. Sometimes there's pray for, praying for, uh, we pray for healing or uh, that could be physical or spiritual or relationship healing. But every time we come to this point in the service, we have an opportunity week after week to be able to say, sin started growing up and spreading. I laid a brick that's starting to cause some separation. I'm, I'm getting rid of that now. I want the full presence. I want the full goodness. I want to avoid discipline of the Father. So, band's going to come, and we're just going to pray. 
And I would just ask you, maybe, maybe Psalms 139, 20-something, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that you despise and lead me step by step down the path of everlasting life. So stand with us. We're going to sing. I pray that we ask, I'll just ask, Holy Spirit, we know that sin causes us to be impotent. We can no longer be effective at what you've called us to be and do. So whether it's one small sin of a lie we told this week, or something much bigger in our minds that, man, if people could just see what was going on in the videotapes of our, our heart and mind, they just wouldn't want to hang around us. Or maybe we're just an inch away from nuking our families, cheating at work, cheating on our spouse, living in a way that is unbecoming, living a defeated life, giving in to one of the enemies, our flesh, this world, or the devil himself. Father, we stand up, we resist him. We say, you cannot, you have no authority in this room. So we lay down not only our crowns, we lay down our sin. We ask and we know how you're going to respond. You're going to respond immediately with grace, patience, mercy, steadfast love, and forever faithfulness. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.